This program is brought to you by the James Wilson Institute on Natural Rights in the American Founding. If you'd like to learn more about the James Wilson Institute, please visit jameswilsoninstitute.org. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello and welcome to the Anchoring Truths podcast. I'm your host, Garrett Snedeker. Today, we continue with the mini-series within this podcast that we're calling The Right Rethinks Economics. Our guest today has written a book that tries to bridge the gap in some of the discourse between the camp that represents the received wisdom, broadly supportive of economic liberty, and the camp that considers doctrinaire defenses of economic liberty to be ill-suited, at least on their own, for the challenges of the present. Alexander Salter is the Georgie G. Snyder Associate Professor of Economics in the Rawls College of Business at Texas Tech University. His new book that we'll be discussing is titled The Political Economy of Distributism, Property, Liberty, and the Common Good, published by Catholic University Press. Alexander took his Ph.D. and M.A. in economics from George Mason University and earned a B.A. from Occidental. Also joining us on this podcast is Joe Kale, one of our interns at the James Wilson Institute. We hope you enjoy the program. Alex, it's a real treat to have you on our Anchoring Truths podcast to discuss your new book. What was your motivation behind writing The Political Economy of Distributism? And in your view, like who is its intended audience? Wonderful place to start. So part of my motivation was... Frankly, I just really like Chesterton, and I wanted to write a book engaging his views uh, during my own. Coming back to the faith of Christianity, Chesterton's writings were very important in guiding me back uh, back towards a Christian worldview. One of my devotional practices is still rereading Orthodoxy and Everlasting Man every Advent and Lent. Distributism in particular has been on my radar for a while, for a number of years. I was largely unsatisfied by how economists treated it because they seem to stop at the criticism of distributism's economic errors. And make no mistake, there are numerous economic errors. If you read Belloc on how markets work, if you read Chesterton on how markets work, there's a lot of claims there that I think don't square with the most up-to-date economic knowledge we have about how markets work. There is such a thing as the science of economics, the science of means and ends. We can show that a lot of the things that they say uh, Belloc makes claims about the naturally concentrative features of capitalism. The natural feature of capitalism, capitalism for businesses to concentrate, get bigger. I don't think that's true. Chesterton makes a number of claims about uh, how about the division of labor that I think don't make sense on basic economic analysis. But even that aside, I think that there's something very valuable in the distributist institutional vision. And this is the major claim that I advance in the book. If you pay attention to the distributists as political economists who are focused on the idea of human freedom and human dignity, their whole goal is looking for the institutional prerequisites of securing human dignity. This idea that the rules of the social game matter immensely for how we order our common affairs and the size and scale of human relations itself matters for how we understand human dignity as interpreted. Catholic social teaching. And so I thought that a lot of people were missing that aspect of distributism. So I wanted to write a book for people who were interested in these ideas, but who were perhaps more or less innocent of the economic way of thinking to show them, yes, you actually do have to take the science of economics seriously, and you can indict the distributists for some of their economic errors. 
but you can still subscribe to their broader political, political economic vision and take a lot of good stuff from this. That was my thrust in writing the book. Can you, can you give us just a working definition of distributism, even without referencing like the Catholic theological tradition or, or without referencing um, certain figures? Uh, just because I think I, I really want our listeners to kind of ground mm-hmm. themselves in how you understand a, a working definition for somebody who has absolutely no um, like familiarity with either, uh, either like, Belloc or, or Chesterton or even you know Catholic social teaching. Certainly. If I'm going to distill it down to its essence, I would say distributism is a school of thought that posits an essential connection between liberty on the one hand and widespread access to productive assets, productive property. Those two things are inseparable. So in order to understand the conditions for authentic human freedom, you have to pay attention to, among other things, is the character of the polity, is the character of the state such that there is open access to production and distribution? Sort of the opposite of what you might call a monopolized society or a controlled top-down society. Now, historically, the distributist way of thinking was practiced by those who are very interested in applying the precepts of Catholic teaching to contemporary institutional analysis. I think if you want to understand distributism historically, you really do have to engage the papal encyclicals of the late 19th century and the 20th century, and then look at people like Chesterton and Belloc and see them as building on that enterprise. But you can really dive into distributism even without doing the historical work if you understand it as primarily a political economic school of thought, not an economic school of thought, right? It's not a coherent statement about how markets work. It's more of a theory of the good society that focuses on the link between freedom and property. That's how I would start. Uh, Would you say that in your estimation that right of center parties, both in the United States and abroad, are drifting away from market liberalism? Will calls for a more interventionist common good capitalism and planned industrial policy supplant what has been the predominant free market orthodoxy that has historically viewed picking winners and losers in the market as anathema. I'm glad you brought that up because the way that I motivate the book and the opening chapter is by engaging this discussion on common good capitalism specifically. Uh, I really dig into the address that Senator Marco Rubio gave at the Bush School of Business at Catholic University of America. I believe that was fall 2019. And the way that I introduce distributism is by saying to the audience of this book, we can think about distributism as one way of advancing this idea, this call for common good capitalism. Now, I actually don't think that common good capitalism is the same thing as national conservatism or the new right. You might regard them as fellow travelers in some respect, but when you look at national conservatism or the new right, yeah, you see a lot of calls for industrial policy. You see a lot of calls for top-down economic control. But the distributists are famously skeptical of any and all such calls because they don't think that you can engineer human dignity from the top down. If you get in, if you look under the hood of what the national conservatives are proposing, they're basically doubling down on the New Deal state, doubling down on the industrial relations that prevailed in uh, the United States in the years immediately prior to and immediately after the Second World War. But that kind of a political economy is one that favors administrative uh, discretion. It favors large-scale enterprises. It favors technique and expertise. It's not really something that's friendly to the common man. It's not really something that's friendly to politics and economics at a human scale. 
So on my interpretation, if we're serious about common good capitalism, we have to realize the ways in which these various calls on the new right are necessarily going to transgress human dignity and liberty. That's what I'm a little more like skeptical of is whether the distributists would have looked at the material conditions that underlie human flourishing today as actually being met and whether workers in 21st century America have the kind of bargaining power um, without uh, the kind of tools that, you know, perhaps uh, a a more muscular state that redounded towards, um, you know, workers as opposed to, um, you know, businesses would. I'm I'm trying to, you know, uh, paraphrase and, and advance the um, uh, national conservative uh, argument to the point where I think, you know, you would be more robustly able to um, address, you know, for the benefit of our listeners, um, how those, um, you know, uh, uh, discussions would um, cash out uh, in light of, I think, the most penetrating uh, national conservative um, uh, critiques. The most obvious thing I can think of in reply is that the distributists wouldn't be so keen on worker centric policies because they're not very keen on the employment relation as we understand it in conventional terms. They don't want a society of wage workers. They want a society of proprietors. Now, of course, there's going to be employment, there's going to be wage labor. You're not going to get rid of that. And I don't think Chester Ken and Bellock or anybody else thought the but the way that they viewed independence, the way that they viewed the ability of a given human community to preserve liberty, you really need the modal household, right? The average family to have a stake in the social order. And they were clear that that came primarily through controlling their own productive enterprise. So they would look at large-scale production, they would look at unions and say, at most, this is like a third best option. What we really want is not some giant uh, business corporation in conjunction with the state guiding production. What we would want is more decentralized production guided by independently owned enterprises, because that's going to be the material and political prerequisite to conversion that we have to. Again, you see a lot of these calls for transforming American political economy by, for example, reviving manufacturing. Even if you could do that without cost, all that would do would change the American landscape political economy to something resembling 1958, 1960. That wasn't exactly an economic and political order conducive to human dignity. Everything was administrative. Everything was top down. It was the heyday of the New Deal state. That's not where we should look in terms of preserving liberty. That's not where we should look in terms of actually authentic human connections. The most that you could say for the old school manufacturing employment in the union shop was, at most, it may have preserved a distribution of income that was more favorable to workers. But the distributists don't care that much about the distribution of income independently from the distribution of property. In fact, they explicitly say, we need to stop thinking in terms of distribution of income. We need to stop thinking in terms of payments alone. It's easy to write checks. Writing checks is not the same as creating the sustainable conditions for human liberty. We need to reimagine our political economy from the ground up if we're going to actually make lasting contributions to preserving politics and economics at a more humane scale. I would say that that going along with your critique of the state as a, a check writer, uh, you launch a, a broader criticism of historic attempts to balance a pure socialistic command economy and a purely 
free market capitalist laissez-faire economy as constituting a stale third way, specifically in reference to the welfare state mixed market model that's prevalent uh, across the Western world. And I would uh, my question is, how would you differentiate between uh, a welfare state model that's predicated on transfer payments and, as you said, the distributist model that's predicated on wide scale proprietorship? You have to evaluate it by different standards. If your goal is wide-scale proprietorship, your metric of success is going to be much more like how many small businesses do we have out there versus what's the actual transfer payments that are going on right now as a share of national income. It's interesting because one of the economists that I talk about at the end of the book, Wilhelm Repke, who was a founder of the Ordo Liberal School of Political Economic Thought, a really important thinker, especially because he also did a lot of applied policy work. He was one of the guys responsible for rebuilding Germany's uh, post World War II shadow market economy and building what we now call the German social market economy. He was famously influenced by Catholic social teaching and the distributists, although he himself was not Catholic and did not identify as distributists. But he did cite Churchill and he did cite Belloc when he was promulgating his theories. And there's a famous conversation that I relate that he uh, had when he was in the office of a welfare bureaucrat years after the Second World War. And he was uh, telling this bureaucrat, look, you need to stop thinking in terms of merely shuffling around purchasing power, because that's not ultimately going to create the sustainable foundations for human dignity. You need to look for programs that are going to increase access to property. You need to look for ways to stop tilting the playing field in favor of big top-down enterprises at the expense of small decentralists. But the bureaucrat replied in a sort of bewildered uh, tone, why, you're a Catholic, aren't you? And Repke responded, one did not need to be a Catholic to think about things this way. So he very much took the imaginative vision of distributism, combined it with no-nonsense economics, in the sense that he strongly respected the science of economics as the science of means and ends. And I would argue that that's the sweet spot. We have to get the economic science right, because without understanding the relationship between means and ends, we're not going to get any of the policies that we want to actually free up our markets, stop stacking the deck against the little guy and contribute to humanity. So you need that broader institutional vision because you need a commitment to a substantive theory of the human good, but you can't do it at the expense of scientific, scientific economics. You need both. What do you think the distributists would say to the sort of the, the regime level question of whether a regime can be oriented towards a certain vision of the good, even if a regime does, uh, you know, institute, you know, policies in their, you know, political economy in which uh, they indeed are reflective of, you know, certain economic truths, but they are in service of ends that are contrary to um, what we would consider to be a rightly ordered regime. And mm. it doesn't take too many leaps of logic to, to think I'm, I'm referring perhaps to, you know, free market arrangements with uh, a regime like uh, the Chinese Communist Party. Right. I think the distributists would immediately pivot to subsidiarity, which was a major pillar of their thinking. It is proper for communities, for lower scale governance units to take a more substantive vision of the good and be oriented around that more substantive vision. But remember, the distributists were writing about the political economy of early 20th century England. They had no illusions about the ability of the national parliament or the cabinet to do these things. They understood that there was a supporting role for public policy to maintaining the character of a free state by making sure that power was decentralized and making sure that markets were open and all these important things. 
but they were very skeptical of this idea that all we needed to do was get the right parliament in place and those guys are going to make good things happen. We're going to do it in fashion. Uh, Clara Piano, who recently reviewed my book, reminded me of a wonderful line of Chesterton's that I unfortunately didn't include in the book, which goes something along the lines of, it's truly tragic that more politicians are not hanged. The distributors were political realists. They understood that the game was rigged. They understood that it was always going to be crony bargains by the strong at the expense of the little guy. So to the extent that national political arrangements could help this, it was solely by being a referee, right? Creating the conditions conducive to small-scale arrangements whereby we could find our way in our little platoons in advance of substitution. We needed to keep these arrangements local precisely because that's the only way that we can safely pursue a concrete vision of the good. And it's also the way in which a concrete vision of the good is most easily operationalized on a humane Now, for our audience, you've touched upon this distinction uh, on a few occasions. How would you differentiate between the more technical social science of economics that some of the distributists have run afoul of in terms of some of their observations and their policy prescriptions and the more normative value driven field of political economy that maybe the the distributist worldview could offer some more insights towards. Specifically, how does this distinction inform the dialogue that has occurred and potentially could occur in the future between uh, distributism and some of the the literature that's uh, more prevalent in the mainstream of economic thought? That's really the area that I would like to see the conversation go in terms of the contemporary scholarship at the end political economy. I define economics broadly as the science of means and ends, right? For given goals that we have, are the means that we choose to achieve those goals actually going to give us the results? Political economy, which I define more broadly, in fact, I take my definition from the uh, Nobel laureate student of constitutional democracy, it's the quest for the good society, the idea that we have broader ethical visions about what we want society to look like, what the foundations for the social order are, and we're ultimately engaged in a deliberative institutional exploration for how we can create those foundations. So I do think that there is something to the old school positive normative distinction, this idea that we can make statements about the way that markets work without necessarily talking about how we would like them to work or how they should Now, a lot of economists will say that the positive normative distinction holds because all we can really talk about meaningfully are people's preferences. If we have clashes over values, all we can do is fight. So there's not really anything to say about values. I do not agree with that. I think that there is such a thing as reasoned inquiry into ends. There is such a thing as ethics, basically. We can't speak meaningfully about the ends that are proper to man. But when I'm doing economics, I'm looking at questions like, uh, if the price of bread goes up, all else being equal, how much less bread will people buy? I'm also addressing questions like, under what conditions will raising the minimum wage increase the total income of unskilled laborers? I think that those questions have concrete answers. And in particular, whatever the true moral state of the world, right? Imagine that you've uncovered the true ethical theory of the world, right? the way that people should ought to behave. I think that whatever that true theory is, one of the facts about the world of that theory is that demand curves still slope down. In other words, as the price of something goes down, all else being equal, people are going to do more. That's the foundation of economic science. I can take that way of looking at the world as it is 
and then apply it to my discussions in conjunction with other citizens about the way the world should be. I argue in the book that good economics is necessary for artful political economy. If you don't get the analysis of the trade-offs right, you're not going to be able to arrive at a communal consensus about what policies and institutions we want to achieve the common But economics by itself is not going to help you achieve the common good because the common good is about broader human ends that ultimately we have to debate about. Economics is not equipped to contribute to that discussion, except as it illuminates trade-offs that we have to confront. Now, uh, in terms of uh, this discussion about the common good and how you can orient markets towards accomplishing specific objectives. Uh, would you classify distributism primarily as an economic project, uh, a social project, or as a hybrid between the two? Historically speaking, uh, one of the the tenets of early Americanism was this Jeffersonian goal of having a, a large population of small property owners, small shopkeepers, artisans, farmers, etc., and would you say that that state of affairs proceeds or follows from having a population that is at once desirous of having this dignified independence that comes with property ownership within the context of that broader social solidarity that um, is prescribed by Catholic social teaching? I'm very glad that you brought that up, because sometimes one of the uh, bewildered replies that I get when I'm talking about distributism is this sounds like inside baseball of European political economy in the late 19th century, early 20th century. What does it have to do with American? As you recognize, these themes have been with us since the founding of the Republic. This is the, this is exactly what speaks to the debates between the Jeffersonians and the Hamiltonians, for example, about the ultimate nature of the new nation, right? whether we're going to be a decentralized nation founded on property ownership or a relatively centralized nation founded on large commercial enterprises and uh, international trade and finance. So I think that a lot of the themes that the distributists were writing about and engaging are not foreign to, but intrinsic to the American experience. To answer your question about what distributism is in its essence, I don't think it's a school of economic thought. It doesn't really tell us anything about how markets work. It doesn't make any concrete propositions about how markets work that are derivable from some, from some underlying analytical framework. I would argue that it is a school of political economic thought. Distributists are engaged in the art of political economy, ultimately looking for how do we build the good society? How do we get the rules of the game such that communities have the ability to uh, how, such that communities have the ability to set the background conditions necessary for human flourishing for their members. And equally importantly, how can these local communities resist encroachment on their just and proper prerogatives from higher order communities? Right? In the American experiment, we talk a lot about federalism. Right? If you're going to take a distributist perspective on American, on American affairs, you necessarily have to answer the questions of, how do we stop the national government from usurping the powers of the state government? And even within the national government, how do we stop the executive and ju uh, judicial branch branches from usurping the prerogatives of Congress? Those are two things that need to be pushed back against if we're going to preserve the right kind of politics and economics that actually gives people a deliberative stake in ordering their common affairs together. So while I don't think that distributism is in any way, shape, or form a substitute for a good economics textbook. I do think that if you want to apply the teachings of economics to the permanent questions of human social organization, 
because that's what we're ultimately all doing here. We're ultimately looking for the good society, ultimately looking to engage in conversations with our fellow citizens about how we ought to order our common affairs. That's necessarily going to involve broad ethical judgments, but I don't think that we're going to get the answer to questions right unless we also bring in our hard-nosed economic analysis. And the distributors, frankly, are not going to help you very much with the hard-nosed economic analysis. Yeah, I, I think the distributists are probably best thought of as you know prudential actors within a scheme of like what Aquinas might call like perfectly reasonable determinaciones of uh, you know Aquinas was referring to uh, you know natural law principles. Um, I don't know if you know economic. Uh, 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 realities would, you know, rise to the level of self-apparent moral truths. Um, although uh, sometimes the the logical, you know, reasoning that you that you perform can be similar. Um, but I guess what I what I'd want to like make sure our our listeners are, are like understanding is maybe your more humble claim, which is that um, distributists are best understood as a. Uh, it's almost like a, 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 this is a uh, this this is a rival movement to as we were talking about earlier that false dichotomy and that what you're doing is in your book making what you think of as the best possible like saving argument for thinking about both the common good uh, but then also um, you know in in kind of a more abstract way. Um, but then thinking about it uh, in terms of how we can form the basis for uh, 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 an economics that doesn't ignore it altogether um, in terms of, sorry, uh, in favor of mm-hmm. uh, uh, maybe <laughs> like an aggregate uh, 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 summing and uh, dividing of million utils, something like that, right? The conventional conversation between left and right proceeds along the lines of how do we make the economic pie as big as it possibly can be? And then how do we divvy up the pie? Mm -hmm. And depending on how you answer those questions, you're going to fall on a specific place along the conventional left-right spectrum. The distributists are really discussing issues that are introduce a whole other axis, right, that are perpendicular to that first axis, almost conceptually unrelated. They're not terribly concerned with squeezing every last decimal of a percentage point out of GDP growth. Yeah. And they're also not terribly concerned with making a more equal distribution of income. If these things are not done in the right way, they do not value them very highly. They would say that the conventional way of looking at these questions implicitly make people interchangeable. But if we're going to apply a Christian anthropology to these questions, we need to recognize that Christian anthropology does not make men interchangeable. It makes Mm -hmm. them irreplaceable. And so we need to make sure that the foundations for human dignity in the form of property access, productive asset access to each and every household, right? Remember that the family, the household, is really at the cornerstone, the foundation of the distributed vision. Mm-hmm. Uh, insofar as it is personalist, it is not individualist. The distributists do not agree that the isolated individual is the foundation of society. The households. So looking at it that way introduces a whole other span of ethical criteria by which we evaluate political and economic relationships. It's not necessarily, the, I'm, I'm not saying that the distributists are saying that growth is bad 
right? Look at how we feed people in this nation today. And when the United States was founded, something like 90% of the population was involved in agricultural production. Today, it's something like 3%. And yet, if you look at the total amount of food that we're producing, if you look at the total amount of calories producing, it's millions of times as large. So you can't just take the classic distributist line of, all right, let's divvy up the land, give it to small farmers. We're all going back to, land, to the land and we're all going to be agrarians, right? That's a stereotype. It's not actually what you're saying. But even if you wanted to embrace that for the sake of argument, clearly that's not going to work because you can't fill, you can't feed, you know, 8 billion people on, on planet Earth that way. So the point that needs to be made isn't we're going to dial back the clock to a previous economic era. It's how do we confront the economic challenges of modernity in a way that respects the dignity of the human person, where we're looking at human dignity in a way that is ultimately not reducible to how much can I consume and how many hours of labor would it take me to buy a washing machine or a car? That's what we're looking for here. So in terms of uh, these differing conceptions of productivity and economic organization, how does distributism conceive of freedom, property, and economic efficiency, along with concepts like economic equality and the distribution of wealth and income relative to classical liberalism? Specifically, how does uh, the distributist notion uh, of economic and political liberty clash with that of more pure libertarians like Friedman or Hayek? There's a lot there that we can talk about. Uh, it's important to note that both Belloc and Chesterton, the progenitors of distributism, identified as liberals in the sense that they were heirs of the Enlightenment, one of the several European Enlightenments. Belloc, in fact, served as a member of par parliament for some years, uh, as a Liberal Party MP, and Chesterton throughout his life proclaimed himself a small D Democrat. So it's important to recognize that I don't think that distributism is necessarily at odds with li with liberalism. I think that you could have someone who is a liberal, classically liberal distributist, and you could also conceivably have someone who was an illiberal distributist. I don't think the categories map onto each other, all that. The problem is that there's so much variety within classical liberalism itself, right? In terms of consequence utilitarianism or rule utilitarianism, right? Are we just trying to maximize the amount of good things that we have? Or are we taking a more holistic perspective on the nature of the human good? I think it's not right to reduce everybody in the classical liberal camp to contemporary consequentialist economics, right? Adam Smith and David Hume, for example, do the world that way. You can see if you read Adam Smith's remarks on his reservations about the division of labor and his reservations about uh, international trade policy. Now, that being said, a lot of people have made a lot of those reservations and have tried to turn the exceptions to the rules themselves. We can't go that way either. Ultimately, what it comes down to is the distributors are looking at things that we sometimes miss. Because economic efficiency means what? It means that people are getting what they want. Right. Given the constraints on the system, right, trade-offs, prices, incomes, so economic efficiency means people are ultimately getting the most of what they want they can get. But for people who are engaged in the serious ethical analysis, it's by no means obvious that people should get everything of what they want. We know from introspection that at least some of the times we want things that are bad for us. So we can't just outsource our ethical judgment to the trade-offs impelled by economic efficiency. We need to take a more foundationalist perspective. 
And it's an open question, of course, of what our institutions, especially political institutions, should do about that. Right? Just because I shouldn't have something, just because it's not good for me, it does not automatically follow that the political community can rightly coerce me or use violence against me from, in, from doing that thing or engaging in that thing. It's a whole other can of worms. So we need to stop assuming that we can outsource our moral judgments to some sort of algorithm like economic efficiency. It doesn't work that way. The prudential quest for the human good is necessarily going to hinge on difficult to adjudicate value judgments. And instead of looking for an easy and fallible way, right, this one weird trick, clickbait, instead of looking for this one weird trick to evaluate those trade-offs, we simply need to roll up our sleeves and do more reason. Well, we agree with that. And frankly, we, we see on the horizon some pretty scary developments, um, not only, you know, uh, uh, in this country, but also abroad at, you know, treating the law um, as a sort of mechanistic application of arbitrary, um, like, precedents and principles, um, you know, in in, uh, in, in, in certain respects. Um, it's the Holmesian, Oliver Wendell Holmes uh, vision uh, at its uh, grandest, where um, all words of moral significance had been banished from the law altogether, where we don't have anything like what he would call a value judgment, but where law and morality are inextricably bound up. If there's a push to divorce the two, inevitably what you've just described in the economic realm will happen in the legal realm as well. And so um, this idea of um, justice without a rendering of justice um, sort of, uh, you know, removes the necessary component um, that no longer allows the sufficient, right, uh, uh, um, you know, carrying out of justice to occur. I think we see eye to eye on that. Legal and political claims necessarily rest upon some pre-existing moral claim about what is proper for human beings. You can't divorce these because then you also divorce the force of law itself from any reason why there should be those rules in the first place. Now, I do not think, by the way, that the domain of morality and the domain of law are equal. And by that, I mean, it's I do not think that everything that is wrong should be illegal, that everything that is right should be mandatory, uh, that living in that kind of a society would frankly terrify me and I would try and get out of it as soon as possible, simply because we know how that's going to work <laughs> Try and do this top down. But too often, people with a people with a scientific mindset tend to think that you can divorce questions of morality from law. And in the economic field, especially, the idea of economic efficiency is sort of used as a crutch to avoid controversial ethical thinking, right? And the, the inappropriate step comes here. I can start by talking about whether a situation is or is not economically efficient. But then we need to actually think about whether economic efficiency is a good rationale for policy or any other type of collective action. And because efficiency just means that people are getting what they want, economists frequently don't understand that they're making an ethical claim, a moral judgment, yeah. when they are serving as efficiency experts for the government. The step comes from situation X is efficient, that's descriptive, Two, and therefore situation X ought to be done, because all we're really doing is giving people what they want. That's not controversial. Of course, it's controversial. Mm -hmm. For anybody who does serious moral reasoning, that is controversial. I think that especially if you have a Christian anthropology, we can think of all sorts of market arrangements that simply ought not exist. 
Right. And by ought not exist, we simply mean that people should not do them. It's not good. It's, of course, a different question whether we should use them. Because then you've got to deal with the cross black markets, right? Then you've got to worry about the secondary effects. And those are ethically bad, too. Again, it comes down to prudential value judgments, and there's no getting away from those. One of the things that's really frustrated me in recent years is the tendency among people in my camp who tend to agree with me on what sort of political economy we should embrace for the United States is this idea that we can do law and politics by autopilot. There is no autopilot for the ship of state. There is no autopilot for moral reasoning. You have to reason about each controversial case on a case-by-case basis using universal principles, right? The principles are universal, but how you apply them to particulars is not something that you can outsource. It's not something you can plug into an algorithm that's going to spit you out the right answer at the time. So we need to get away from this way of thinking that if if we just get the rules of the game right, if we just get the right constitution on paper, if we just get the right people in positions of power, that'll take you. No, it won't. No, it won't. Right. The price of liberty is eternal vigilance, and there's no getting around the fact that this is going to be a constant effort of maintenance. And that might mean that we have less time to do other fun things, so be it. That's how we preserve and maintain a free society. Um, if could, How can distributism be implemented in terms of practical policy changes, especially uh, in the context of the current challenges of globalization and automation um, given the the rise of populist nationalism, um, and specifically, how would uh, distributism serve to address this externality that you identified of this diminished freedom that is brought about by uh, untoward concentrations of capital? I think the answer to both of those is the same. The place to start is to recognize right now the playing field is substantially rigged in favor of the large and strong against the small and independent. Look at the complexity of the tax code. Look at the complexity of the regulatory code. Look at all the licensing requirements we have. All of these things make doing business, engaging in productive enterprise, much more difficult for small proprietors rather than businesses that are large, right? Who's going to have an easier time of coping with these things? It's going to be the large, already established corporation that can afford full-time lawyers, full-time accountants, and maybe even a team of lobbyists on case. So I think that one of the areas where common good capitalists, more classical liberal types, and even libertarians could agree on is that it's not okay to use the political process to tilt the playing field in favor of the large and powerful. That's just a form of rent right? That's a form of theft, even. Getting rid of these requirements is the first step because we need to understand how these things are going to shake out once we stop artificially rigging the game. And then from there, we can talk about more substantive solutions like devolving power to the more local levels, uh, what municipal corporations, municipal city, um, cities, basically counties, and even state-level governments can do to encourage more uh, economic independence. I think one of the geniuses of the American setup is that we have this baked into the system of federalism. The whole point of federalism is that more local levels of government are supposed to be more actively involved in solving the governance problems that flesh and blood communities actually confront on a day-to-day basis. National government is not supposed to be involved in these things. If something happens in Washington, it's supposed to be only something that's truly a common interest to all of the nation. Right now, the default is if there's anything that matters to anybody in the nation, we try and tackle it in Washington, D.C. first, and then if there's anything left over, we do it at the state and local level. It's not going to fly. 
You cannot have true freedom that way. You cannot have economic independence that way. You cannot have a humane. So, Alex, last question. Mm-hmm. If there's any hope for re kind of reevaluating that, I keep coming back to that you know, false dichotomy that you um, allude to in the introduction to your book. If there's any hope for shifting the thinking, um, do you think that it'll come from statesmen like Senator Rubio, or do you maybe foresee a flashpoint in uh, in the uh, foreseeable future where the type of approach that you um, are advocating just, you know, shows its clarity and, and its just like practical application, um, kind of like how Joe was asking, where, where do you see you know, the ideas leaving the realm of you know academic discussion and then like practically um, applying? Right. I think that you're going to need independent action in several segments of society all at once. And all of them have to happen. If any one of them doesn't happen, I think that you're not going to get this thing off the ground. You're going to need more community engagement. You're going to need more politics done at the city and county level. You're going to need more politics done at the state level. Show me a governor, even the governor who talks the biggest game about state rights and local prerogatives. They say that on the campaign trail, and then the second that one of their staffers tells them, hey, some federal money for something is available, they gobble it up. Right? Federal money, that means I can get things to spend on political projects without having to raise taxes, and that's good for me politically. Uh Uh-uh. If you want to actually make this happen, you're going to need to tell a governor. You're going to need a plurality of governors to tell Washington, "Thanks, but no thanks." We'll handle our own purse strings because money is power, and we want to keep that inside the community. Until and unless governors are willing to do that, it's not going to happen. And yeah, you are going to need national legislators actually working on these problems. You're going to need legislators reasserting the prerogatives of Congress, right? This idea that Congress is supposed to be the first branch among equals, right? But so much of the governance that we actually care about at the national level is done by unaccountable bureaucracies in the executive branch or done by judges, the legislative branch. So we're going to need to restore the prerogatives of Congress. And part of the problem with that is one of the reasons that Congress is so atrophied is because they didn't want the ball in their court. They didn't want to take all those difficult votes. They didn't want to have to actually engage in substantive legislating. It's way easier to mouth off on camera and then just kick the ball down, kick the can down the road by outsourcing it to somebody else and having it be somebody else's. So you're going to need citizens actually engaged in this who are willing to care about procedural issues. That includes, by the way, citizens who are willing to take on the cares and the responsibilities of ownership. I got news for you. The reason that we don't have more independent proprietorships in this country isn't because centralized capitalist uh, corporations have gobbled up all the means of production. It's because ownership is really hard and we can't be bothered. Right? Running your own business is hard. Thinking in terms of ownership rather than renting is hard. It's going to require a lot more work. It's going to require you to give up perhaps some purchasing power in terms of your standard of living. It's going to require that you give some of your scarce free time to city and community engagement boards, right? Maybe even run for office yourself just so we don't waste it off to uh, the expert political class. All these things mean that we're going to have less time and money available for satisfying our preferences. That's a tough sell. But until and unless you cultivate the ownership mindset in people themselves, this is something that Chesterton and Belloc, right? You cannot make a society of owners simply by redistributing property and handing it to people. 
Because if they're not the right kind of person, if they haven't developed the ownership relevant virtues to put that capital to work, they're just going to sell it right back to the large corporations and we're back to where we start. So we're going to need independent citizen initiatives. We're going to need state, municipal, and national government initiatives. We're going to need everything firing on all cylinders. And I think that unless we get all of that, we have to be honest with ourselves. If we're not willing to do that, maybe we just don't care about human freedom. Well, it sounds like we have to have you on the podcast uh, in the future, Alex, to talk about uh, BlackRock gobbling up uh, entire neighborhoods to turn um, homes that were once uh, owned into uh, permanent renting uh, units. Because right, the hot uh, that, topic right now. Yeah, that 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 strikes me as maybe one of the the flashpoints that you may very well get on um, local civic engagement, and it's almost like these people who preternaturally oppose such moves, they're just lacking the kind of like. I don't know, uh, bibliography to cite how they can oppose such moves, even though it might be in their material interest to sell to BlackRock um, because of what you've described in your book. So um, with that, yeah, with with that, um, uh, we're going to have to put a pin in this podcast, but we're to be continued then. Yeah, to be continued is right. Um, You know, the the topics in uh, Alex's book um, are relevant as ever. Again, it's the political economy of distributism, property, liberty, and the common good. Um, available on on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and all fine booksellers. Um, we'll make sure to include links to purchase the book in uh, the show notes. And um, again, we're just deeply grateful uh, to have you on our podcast for a timely discussion. I had a great time. Thank you for having me on, and God bless you both. This program has been brought to you by the James Wilson Institute on Natural Rights and the American Founding. If you'd like to learn more about the James Wilson Institute, please visit jameswilsoninstitute.org. Thanks for listening.